hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Monday, February 3rd, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host, Andy Goodman, is in a bunker in an undisclosed location, getting better from uh, BRCA, breast something, cancer. We wish her what we love her. All the best. You officially just lost your status as CEO I did. of Stupid Cancer. She's still in a bunker, though. She is. It's you, right? What? It's you because it's not okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay. There's 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. And I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Sorry if you're a first-time listener. On Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show is Stupid Infertility. Fertility rights are the hot-button topic of the year for young adults facing cancer. And recent research published by our guests, Dr. Marla Clayman and uh, Dr. Gwen Quinn from uh, UCF College of Medicine and uh, Northwestern University, respectively, show uh, shamefully low adoption of fertility navigation services across the U.S., and uh, model survivor Julia Wagner in the Survivor Spotlight. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live-tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SCRadio. All right. You navigated that introduction with grace and style. <laughs> As <laughs> my, always. My um, mind isn't where it should be, uh, specifically where it should be tonight. I'm stressed because I have a flight at 7.30 in the morning, and, like, it's blizzarding, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, that well was where like, are you going? Where are you going? I'm going Excellent to... Excellent segue, Maureen. I'm going to segue right now. It's blizzarding, though, by the way. Yeah, so that it was is the first point. blizzarding, yes. yes. It's, it's bad outside. I'm going to San Francisco, and I will be uh, attending and speaking at the Rock Health CEO Digital Summit, uh, which is... Uh, Rock Health is a nonprofit organization that is a think tank incubator for digital health startups, mm-hmm. and uh, this conference is their annual meeting at Wharton, where they bring together 50 or so uh, leading folks. I was asked to speak. I will be attending, and it's uh, another opportunity for me to get in front of sort of next-generation thought leaders and investors and whatnot about who we are, what we do, what we're different. I'll be talking about Instapeer, our conference, and the way we're kind of running Super Cancer like a business. Cool. Yeah. Well, Sounds like fun. Glad we're not running it like a lemonade stand. <laughs> nothing against, that was 2008. Nothing against anyone with a similar name, though. What? Lemonade stand. Oh, yeah. We, well, I have respect for we Alice Lemonade them. stand. We love them a lot. No, they're good. They do good work. Did you just say no, they're good? What? No, I like them. No, you like them, or yes, you like them? Oh, shut up. It's a great All right, I'll read their... I'll read their Rock Health is a full-service seed fund that is empowering the future of the digital health ecosystem. Bringing together the brightest minds across disciplines to build better solutions, Rock Health funds and supports startups building the next generation of technology, transforming healthcare at rockhealth.com. 
but they are a nonprofit, so it should be rockhealth.org. But anyway. Well, we were stupidcancer.com for a, we uh, were. For a moment of... Uh, Good decision was that. Uh, that was a bad decision. That was, <laughs> that was our uh, former and current CEO. I don't know why that ever happened. Part of me was like, well, if we have a more of a commercial-sounding brand, then we'll get more traction. It didn't work. We call those the dark ages. <laughs> and now here we are. I can't be perfect with everything that I do. Well, that's why you hired me. Yes. Well, actually, <laughs> I hired everyone except you, you. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, talk about our weekend because there was a game that was held. I was aware of it. There was a game. A sports game happened. Some kind of like sports activity occurred yeah. this weekend. It was There's so important that MZ watched it. I did watch it. Although I didn't need to watch it after like the first two minutes because of the safety. Yeah, no, after <laughs> the harbinger of things to come. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I left at half. I brought my son to Maureen's for her football, uh, Super Bowl housewarming party. Which yes, was, I had a housewarming. You have friends. I was impressed. I a lot of people showed up. I didn't. I don't you know how that happened. <laughs> it's really, yeah, we were just talking about it's this It's good to meet all your though, friends. How, how very... They're all very nice and smart. There was very, a poker game in the back. Oh, those aren't my friends. Oh, those are different friends? Those are the friends. So I, I live with two other people, one of whom is my cousin, and the other one is a friend of his. Okay. Um, and so his friends were the ones doing the classy things, and my friends were the ones drinking beer and watching football. So that's really it was really the way to differentiate. Not yeah. that drinking beer and watching football isn't classy. Well, I'm impressed anyway. And you had three dogs running around, or four there dogs running four around. Dogs there were four around. dogs running around. There were four dogs and yeah. your three-year-old son. Sounds like the football game was an afterthought. Right. Football game, there, you should have seen the food. There was a lot going on. Right. A lot going on, which was good because the football game needed to be an afterthought after, like you said, after about 6.35. Yeah. And, uh, Kenny, what did you do this weekend for the Super Bowl? Uh, I went to my friend's house, and okay. then Lauren shut up <laughs> because she had work. Got it. Got and it was equally as interesting uh, and boring. Well, we had our epic uh, brand, Super Cancer brand shot. From the Super Bowl, thanks to our friend Chad yes. Rackman. He's a photographer for one of the major papers here in New York City and had a great seat. Yes, he certainly did. It was really impressive. And uh, you got to um, check out our Facebook wall, facebook.com slash stupidcancer, to take a look at the picture. In the end zone, literally in the end zone, with his hat on. It was great. Yeah. Was as close to the end zone as the Broncos got was Chad Rackman. So if you think okay. you had a good Super Bowl... Chad probably had a better one, unless you're a Seahawks fan or you're Pete Carroll, in which case you had the best. What about the singer? Everybody made such a big deal. What Renee was her name? Fleming? Fleming, yeah. Renee Fleming is an opera singer. She was good. She was very good. What, what, who's making a big deal out of it? The the world, the internet. What's, well, the internet. Why? Because it wasn't like Beyonce singing or something. No, they for for the better. I think that the fact that well, people argue that Bruno Mars isn't very well known, but I think he's pretty well known. He's pretty. How could he's, you not? He's quite what, well even, known. I know about him. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Come on. Oh come on! You can't come wrong with them. Everyone knows them. I don't know why they put the Red Hot Chili Peppers in there though. That was a weird. That was the to do insertion. A process, no, that was the buy get buying from the Gen X movement, like me. I guess it worked. Yeah, it did work. <laughs> yeah. But no, Renee, something was quite good. I thought there was actually my favorite part is they, they apparently put an over under on the length of the. Star Spangled Banner, how long they'll take to sing it. Right, right. And it so was two minutes and like 20 was, seconds Yeah, it was 138 seconds, so 218. Right. Um, she came in under. Good job, Renee Fleming. Right. Good job, Renee Fleming. Well Very done. Proud. Well done. Um, and I also wanted to b- give some props to an upcoming major conference. Now, we produce our big conference every year, but there's another uh, large, like big, even bigger conference uh, for young women affected by breast cancer. It's called C4YW, and it's the Conference for Young Women affected by cancer, and it's produced by Living Beyond Breast Cancer and our partners at the Young Survivor Coalition. Maureen, you will be there. I will be attending. Yeah. Allie Ward, our VP of Programs, and I will be attending and exhibiting. So if you're going to C4YW, you have no excuse not to come say hi to me. I'll probably give you something for free and sell you a hoodie. So get ready for it. Okay. And, uh, yeah, the website is c4yw.org, mm-hmm. and you could register today. When is it again? It's two weeks? It is it the – oh, my goodness, it's already February. Yeah. So it is that next to last weekend in February, uh, February 23rd-ish. Right. 24th, February 21st through 23rd of 2014. I was prepared for that. <laughs> 21st Feeling a, a sad sense of I won't be there. In yeah. Orlando. Well, Kenny, you've been there. You've been a staple there for the last four or five years, right? Um, Let's go with three. Okay. Uh, Something like that. Something like that. He's been there since the beginning. It's like their fifteenth year doing this, or something like this. Something, something incredibly I was lengthy. In third grade when you they were. started. 
Wonderful. Something in you descended the the other inaugurated the uh, the conference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Speaking of descending, um, my son came to your house. He was. I want to give shout out to my son Kobe. He's three. He'll be four. Yep. For being a really good boy. He was very good. Yes. And he is a master of those stairs. Let me tell you. He loves stairs. Yeah. It's I was his freaked thing. out the entire time. I'm like, he's yeah. gonna fall. He's gonna fall downstairs. Yeah. I'm gonna lose my job. <laughs> and he didn't. So props to Kobe for letting me keep my job. Very Much nice. Much appreciated. Very nice. All right. Well, we're waiting for our uh, Survivor Spotlight, Julia, to call in. I think this is her calling in now. Um, I will uh, wait for our producers to give me the okay, but if, uh, it, it's very exciting. She um, she is a, uh, a model. She was diagnosed um, with osteosarcoma uh, in 2006 and was recently written up in a big article in Houston, and it's just uh, very exciting. Very exciting to have her on the air. So I think this is her. So I'm going to take the risk here and start queuing up the music. This could be anyone. Yeah, this could be anyone, but we're going to go for it. <laughs> oh, it's not working. <laughs> oh, Julia, hello. Are you on the air? No, we lost her. Oh, we lost her. Oh, man. Let's see how long the song is. <laughs> All right, well, I'll read her intro, and hopefully she'll call back in shortly. Uh, but uh, Julia Wagner is a model with Dynamic Paradigm Agency from Houston, Texas. She survived osteosarcoma in 2006 after being told she was a terminal case and would lose her leg. She survived cancer-free for seven years and uses her modeling career uh, to raise awareness of childhood cancer and is working on a book entitled The Strength. We found, hopefully, she'll be calling into the show. But I will end the introduction music, and we're going to have to stall for time here. So what do you think we should talk about? Oh, we are on the spot, aren't we? Yeah, we are on the spot. Okay. Well, we could talk about this article that we'll be discussing uh, later on before our, our main guests get on. It was called Leading Cancer Centers Neglect Patients' Fertility. Is that in the stack? Yeah. In your stack of for those, papers? For those of you who don't know, we have a stack. <laughs> we do have a stack of papers. We um, do a lot digitally here. The right. Radio show. No, this is, there was a really big article. And again, this, we'll be bringing on our guests um, for the second half of the of the show. But the article in U.S. News Report and a bunch of other major magazines picked up the story that few cancer centers and their staff notify patients of risk of fertility loss when right. they're diagnosed with cancer. Can't speak tonight. And that's a shame because all the hard work we've been putting in for seven years now to raise awareness for this and build standards and yeah. it's not being implemented. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's it's really frustrating, um, especially when it's it's something it's it's a sentence, you know. I mean, well, it, first it's a sentence, just something to say to somebody, um, and then of course it is like you know a multi-week procedure for many people or in getting the right appointments, but yeah, just to to not even mention it is has it gotten crazy. better or worse? Does this article specify? Well, we're going to ask our guests that, but this yeah. is the fuel behind why I decided to make tonight's show uh, about that. I'm being told that our our guest, um, Julie, is having difficulty calling in. So we're actually, uh, both of our guests for the 930 spot are called in right now. So we're just going to be improvisational and cue them up. I will uh, prepare the uh, prepare to activate, and let's go to our secondary hold music here. All right, one, two, three. Okay. Dr. Marla Clayman is an assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern University and a member of the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. Her research focuses on patient participation, decision-making, and patient-provider communication. Joining her is Dr. Gwen Quinn, a senior scientist at Moffitt Cancer Center and a professor at the USF College of Medicine. Her research also focuses on, similarly, patient-physician communication about cancer technology. Please welcome to the show Martha Clayman and Gwen Quinn. Ladies. Hello. Hi, thanks for signing on early. It worked out that we're having difficulty with our, our main guest here, but I'm really uh, profoundly uh, impressed with the work that you're doing, and it's a, like I said, it's a really hot-button topic for our movement and everything we represent, advocating for young adults. Um, but I, I'd first just like to get started by having you introduce yourselves and uh, how you got into this crazy racket actually advocating for people like me. 
I'll let Gwen go first because she's been doing this crazy racket a little bit longer than I have. Okay, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, this is Gwen Quinn, and um, you mentioned where I work. And I got involved in this um, probably in about 2003. Um, the Live, uh, actually, the Fertile Hope. Um, had a program where they were trying to um, offer the Center of Excellence designation to cancer centers that met certain criteria for having um, fertility-related information and policies and systems in place. And um, when I went to try and apply for that designation on behalf of our cancer center, I realized that we didn't meet any of the criteria. So uh, as a goal to get that designation, we wound up you know, building a program uh, and along the way, I uh, met Marla at the um, first um, Uncle Fertility Consortium meeting, and she and I have been involved in several research projects centered around this topic. And uh, and this is Marla. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. As you say, so this is Marla, and as Gwen mentioned, we met at the Uncle Fertility Consortium, the first meeting, and that consortium was based primarily at Northwestern under Teresa Woodruff. And so actually I got into this when the consortium was first funded because they were looking for within their social science part of that larger grant, they were looking for people who could do some research related to the information that patients wanted and how they were getting it. And so that's how I got drawn into the world of fertility preservation. Right, and for our listeners out there, Dr. Teresa Woodruff is one, one might consider the godmother of the uh, fertility movement in cancer advocacy, and she started the Woodruff Lab at Northwestern University and has been a pioneer of, of the... Actually, she invented the word oncofertility, as far as I am aware, and um, she uh, ha has done miracles in terms of raising awareness and the science and the research, but we get back to why uh, we... I invited you guys on the show is this amazing research that you've conducted about the actual pragmatic adoption. The boots on the ground programs are not in sync with policy recommendations. Is that correct? I would say that that's a fair way to put it. Yes. So let's dig a little so, deeper. Then, um, which one of you decided to to under? Or did you collaborate to say we're gonna we're gonna Scooby do this and figure out if it's working? I don't remember, Marla, do you? <laughs> well, I think what had happened was I wrote um, a proposal to do this, and then when I was talking to Gwen about it, she said, oh, I had wanted to do that also but wasn't able to under this other project that I was doing. And so it just so happened that um, I think great minds think alike or at least somewhat okay minds think alike. And we had, uh, so we had the opportunity to do this, and because Gwen had done so much work related particularly to the provider side, things like what doctors' barriers were to providing this information and what oncology nurses' barriers were. It seemed just a natural fit to have her as part of the project. So I won't say I'm the first person who ever thought of doing this type of study, but I was lucky enough to be able to have some funding to be able to do it at a time that it worked. So let's dive into the brass taxes, how did you first uh, embark on uh, sort of the, what did you observe, first of all, and how did you go about conducting your research over how much time to, to gain these insights? So this particular study, um, we said that what we wanted to do was to do interviews with people at all of, or as many as would talk to us, of the places that are called National Cancer Institute designated comprehensive cancer centers. And there are only about 40 of those in the entire country. And at the time that we did it, there were 39 that saw adult patients. Uh, and so we did interviews with people between June of 2010 and November of 2011. And we were able to get responses from people at 30 of those 39 comprehensive cancer centers. So what we did was we sent letters to people um, who either were heads of the cancer centers or heads of programs where we thought that fertility preservation might be involved and also asked them, said, if you're not the right person, 
can you send this to the right person in your institution? Because when you get to that sort of level, you know, like you're saying we want to talk to like the head of survivorship or the head of fertility preservation. And so then we would talk to the people who were involved in the work and would be able to give us some insight into at their own institution what they felt like was or was not being done. Were the people that you reached out to surprised that they were being asked these questions in the first place, or is it something that they kind of had an idea was brewing in the dialogue? I think it depends on the institution. There were definitely places where, like Gwen was saying, that you know were fertile hope centers of excellence, or that this was definitely had been some sort of a priority. And there were other places where that was not the case. So, for example, of the nine places that we didn't talk to, um, four of them just didn't respond to us at all, despite the fact that we kept trying to reach out to them. And three of them referred us specifically to childhood cancer survivorship clinics, so that when we finally did reach somebody at their institution, they didn't even quite understand what we were talking about, and they thought that it was we were just talking about childhood cancer survivors. Uh, and there was one place that simply said no, and then one said, "We, I don't know about anything that's going on at my institution. And we couldn't find anybody at that institution who, who seemed to know anything about fertility preservation. So I think it really runs the gamut uh, of, you know, people having some programs in place and being aware of uh, in the most parts, aware of what they were doing well and what they weren't doing well. All right, so let me bring this over to Gwen in terms of, you know, um, is this an is this an issue? Or, or, I'm going to try to, like, go as far high up in the clouds. So we know for a fact that fertility is a major issue for young adults with dealing with cancer. Uh, their fertility can be compromised. They could lose their ability to have children, to bear children, uh, to even conceive. This is for men and women, and that it's only been a recent conversation in the last couple of years that this has come to light. And yet, despite all these uh, this dialogue and this narrative, are there actually standards in place? Like the Fertile Hope was a great idea. Does that sort of good housekeeping seal of approval mean anything, or was it just something people said they would do and they're not following up on? Well, I think that's part of what uh, Marla's uh, data uncovered, and certainly I also used to sit on the um, Lustrung Fertility Advisory Council. And um, so the places that are that were actively seeking that designation, part of what's involved in it is having a constant evaluation. And usually there isn't funding and there um, maybe it's not a champion to make sure that the con you can't just put a program in place and leave it there. You have to evaluate and keep up with it. And even though the ASCO guidelines, um, they came out in 2006 and they were just revised in 2013, and I think the ASCO guidelines are really informed by um, the updates are kind of informed by the work that some of these cancer centers have done when we identified what the barriers were. So the guidelines in 2006 used to say oncologists um, have an obligation to discuss uh, fertility preservation with interested patients and so in 2013 we changed that guideline to take out the word interested and say all patients because we recognize that it's, it's difficult to make this a patient issue. It's difficult to inform some people in advance that if oh one day if you get diagnosed with cancer remember to ask about your fertility. So I think uh, the ASCO guidelines and, and other you know, national organizations really recognize that this is an institutional and a provider issue, and the onus is on them um, to to put these programs in place. But every institution, every provider practice has its own culture, and so to mandate exactly how it should be done would probably not be effective. So you need to put out some general policies, guidelines, and suggestions and let each place figure out what will work for their institution. All right, so ideally, is there a specific job for someone at an, at an academic center who would be responsible for this, or is it a shared responsibility amongst a team of providers? 
Well, I think in an ideal world, uh, every institution would have someone whose job it was to do this. Uh, and there are a couple examples of places that, that do have um, someone with different titles and different backgrounds. But it really is the uh, has to be part of the team. Obviously, it's the oncologist's uh, kind of duty to um, inform about this. But you know, some people in their cancer trajectory will see a surgeon first, and you know, we really try and work to educate surgeons to realize that they have a unique um, opportunity to have this discussion. Technically, they're not ca causing the infertility unless it happens to be a reproductive area of cancer, but. And that gives uh, patients who are healing from surgery a chance to uh, avail themselves of fertility preservation methods if they choose to before they start chemo. So because that window that of opportunity can be very narrow, you know, as soon as possible, the diagnosis, um, it's important to, to get this information. But I'll say part of the reason why this is a struggle for both, you know, the healthcare provider and the institutional um, uh, the institution itself is because sometimes patients are just not in the right frame of mind to think about it or they uh, it was presented to them but there was so much else going on at the time that they don't recall and so we do know there's a mismatch between patient recall and you know what exactly happened so we still need to find better ways to make sure that we're informing people at the right place at the right time and that they have information to take home with them and other resources to call so that when they are ready to think about they can even get help thinking about it. Um, we, we did some work with you know, very young girls who were diagnosed in their teens, and we make the joke that you know, the nursery rhyme goes, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage. And so you're trying to get young people sometimes to think about that third step when they haven't even thought about love you know, our marriage or relationships. So there's a lot of um, lot of aspects to the communication piece. So, so at the risk of being non-diplomatic, are you revoking the Center of Excellence moniker from these centers for not actually stewarding what they claim they were doing to earn it in the first place? Well, that Center of Excellence designation was created by Fertile Hope, and as you know, Fertile Hope was acquired by Livestrong, um, and currently the program is kind of in suspension. So they have not taken any new uh, centers on um, to apply, and I don't believe that they've had the resources or the person power to kind of assess that. So Marla's study, um, you know, while it's anonymous in terms of knowing which centers are, she has good data on, you know, who would who is, you know, maintaining those standards. But there still are some centers out there who don't have the Fertile Hope Center of Excellence that are doing a great job. Um, so I, I wish something like that would come back. I wish there was a national organization that would get involved with awarding that uh, designation and monitoring it so maybe institutions would step up to the plate a little more. Hey, Gwen, this is Maureen. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Marla. I was just going to say, one of the things that I wanted to, to add about this is when we talk about, um, so there's some overlap but not complete overlap between who are Fertile Hope Centers of Excellence and who are these NCI-designated Conferences Cancer Centers. There's a lot more of these NCI Conferences Cancer Centers than there are Fertile Hope Centers of Excellence. And, and they tend to be the biggest, most well-resourced places. And so one of the, going back to Matt's question about whose responsibility is it, one of the issues with a lot of these places is that they're really large. So they may, for example, do a great job in their breast cancer clinic of telling women, but if a woman was 35 and diagnosed with colon cancer, she's being seen physically in a different clinic with different providers. And so, there, and so it's very difficult when you're talking about those very large diffuse organizations to have really consistent policies and procedures and things, and that's also part of what Gwen was responding to when she said that you can't dictate exactly how it should be done at each place. And so I want to keep that in mind also is that there's a lot of intra-institution variability as well. That's interesting. Um, so I just introduced myself. I'm Maureen. Um, one thing that I believe Gwen mentioned was that in some patients kind of forget 
about whether or not they've heard or whether or not they've talked to someone about fertility. Um, and is there any, you, are there any ways to combat that? I was wondering, like, are there, because I know there are some cancer centers that do employ fertility preservation specialists. Are there any systems where it's required that a patient meet with someone or recommended that a patient meet with someone prior to beginning treatment? I think some systems have flags. Um, so as you're, uh, you know, updating the medical record, uh, that would be a flag that you would could enter that information. If you were a provider, hopefully it could be a prompt to say, oh, I, I forgot that. I need to get back to that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it happens in very different ways, you know, in, in very different places. Mara and I are also working on a study right now where we're looking at actual uh, patient medical records and looking at whether or not the uh, physician documented that discussion in the medical record, because those of you in the healthcare field know that if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. Um, right. And we're not we're finding very poor um, rates of documentation. So, um, it not that there has been any legal cases, and we hope that it wouldn't have to come to this. But it would be difficult for you know, some providers to assert that they did, in fact, have the conversation that the patient forgot if there isn't anything in the medical record. So that may be, be one way. Obviously, there, there isn't one thing that's going to kind of solve this issue, but one thing we hope is that by holding up a mirror to uh, these institutions who are involved in this chart abstraction study to look at um, how poor the rates of documentation are and, and um, that, that will perhaps help build better systems to um, help facilitate the the documentation of the discussion and the actual discussion. Okay, we're going to take a quick station ID break. Mara, I'm sorry. We're going to take a quick station ID break to do our news because we're off off kilter with our our, um, missing uh, spotlight. But we'll be back in about three minutes, so hang on the line. Thanks so much. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Alrighty, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Have two meetups coming up in Anchorage, Alaska, as well as a meetup with this guy named Matthew Zachary happening in Mountain View, California. Tomorrow night. Is that tomorrow night already? Tomorrow night, yeah. Uh, and... Some Stupid Cancer Meetup and OMG Info Sessions happening in San Diego and Denver, Colorado. All right, folks, Vegas time. Registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is open for business. Come out to the largest young adult cancer conference in the world and join 500 of your fellow patients, survivors, caregivers, and advocates for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life forever. Visit omg2014.org. That's omg2014.org. And learn more. Uh, but don't forget about the OMG Players Club, your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for a stupid cancer. It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. It's snowing today, so Polar Vortex be damned. You'll stay nice and warm in a stupid cancer hoodie. Surf on over to stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud, wear stupid cancer. And that, that is, is your Stupid Cancer, cancer News. news. All right, we're talking with Dr. Gwen Quinn and Dr. Marla Clayman. Uh, uh, Gwen is a uh, senior scientist at Moffitt Cancer Center, and Marla is the assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern University and member of the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center. We're talking about fertility rights in young adults and the massive uh, gap in uh, what we'd like to see happen and what's actually happening, uh, boost on the ground. Please welcome back to the show. Ladies, thank you so much. You got applause twice. How you like that? We just like you so much. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Marla. A lot more applause than I usually ever get. Oh, well, you deserve it. This is really, re- when I read this article, it really bothered me because we're sitting here in our, inside the Apple Corps, really trying to rally a movement for, you know, and the inequities facing, the, the unique inequities facing this, this generation. And while we'd like to say there's been progress because clearly there are now guidelines, there's, NCCN guidelines, there's COG guidelines, there's SWAG guidelines, there's ASCO guidelines, but what good are the guidelines if no one's actually implementing them or managing the people that are in charge of them, correct? 
Well, you know, they're, they're, these are diff all different groups that are taking slightly different angles at the same topic. So there's going to be a lot of overlap, but there's not one overall uh, consensus document that comes out that says this is exactly what people should be doing. All right, so how would you remedy that then? Your research is clearly one of the, I mean, obviously, isolation, peer support, fertility rights, careers, insurance, marriage, parenting, these are all unique when you're diagnosed in your 20s and 30s, not to, you know, take away from the, you know, the horrors and uh, of it happening at different age ranges, but this is clearly something that you, 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 you hit a nerve of a lot of industries. What, what has been the response uh, to your findings? Well, I think, actually, the it was really gratifying, actually, that this was picked up more widely because a lot of times researchers write things and then only other researchers see it, and this is the kind of thing that I was hoping that there would be a broader discussion about, and I was following on Facebook and Twitter the discussion amongst the stupid cancer followers, and like you said, it really hit a nerve, and you know, in that way, I'm, so, I'm sorry that it hit a nerve, that people felt like, I can't believe that this is still happening. I think that um, I have not actually had as much reaction from, you know, from these other institutions. Uh, so maybe some of those discussions are happening within those institutions. I think that it, what, what does happen sometimes is that people who do things, um, you know, for example, I'm at Northwestern and people know that there's the Oncofertility Consortium, and so people um, in the field will know and they might call up someone like Teresa or someone like Kristen, who's our fertility navigator, and say, hey, what are you guys doing there? I know that Glenn has had a lot of that with, at Moffitt as well. Um, and, the, and so there's some of it that happens in that informal way um, more than through formal channels related to research and guidelines being, and being, guidelines being published. So what have, you, what have been some examples? Um, I know personally that Northwestern is wonderful, and I'm sure that Moffitt is as well. Um, like what, what are some examples of really great like, fertility preservation programs that you have seen in your research? Because you said there are some that are doing a really good job. Um, like, what, what are the aspects of those good programs? So I think that what the really good programs do and that what they have in common is that there's either someone or a group of someones whose responsibility it is to follow up with this. And so we had in a um, in this article that came out, we had a lot of quotations from people who we interviewed, and one of them said that they really didn't, they thought that it was important for the oncologist to bring it up, but that they didn't necessarily think that the oncologist needed to be the one who had that in-depth discussion. And so to have a point person was really important. There were a couple places that we talked to where there were point people, because you're not going to have somebody, you can't have somebody who's there 24-7, but if you said, oh, you know, it's going to be one of these three people so that any time I have a young adult patient, I can say something like, oh, before your, your uh, treatment starts, you know, we're going to want to have this test and we're going to want you to talk to this person and we're also going to want you to talk to our fertility person. Because that gets it into the workflow and it gets it to a place where the oncologist can feel comfortable that the information that's being given is reasonable information and is something that they can stand behind because they care about the patient, but it doesn't put the burden on the oncologist of becoming an expert in fertility preservation. Right. So that right, so the like the reproductive endocrinologist would say, you know, I'm not an expert on oncology, I wouldn't expect them to become an expert in my field either. That makes sense. Um has are there any budgetary concerns associated with this with, you know, designating people to have this job? So that's a big concern, and I think that uh, different places deal with it differently. So um, in part because they there's no roadmap for exactly who this needs to be. So is mm -hmm. it someone who could be an oncology nurse, for example, who's not being paid necessarily as a fertility person, but that's the person who has gotten extra training and knows a lot about this. Is it that it's a reproductive endocrinology nurse who 
who works with a reproductive endocrinologist? Is it a reproductive endocrinologist who's just really motivated? So there's a lot of uh, discussion about that, and I think that different organizations and different people come to it in different ways. There's not a great model, uh, mm-hmm. especially as what Gwen was saying, that we don't have um, great documentation of this. So it's not like somebody can say, I talked to them about, uh, about fertility risks and that they can get reimbursed for that. Right. So it becomes one more sort of unfunded mandate. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back to this whole policy. You were very astute in pointing out that just because there are national cancer, comprehensive cancer network guidelines and ASCO's focus on the 40 and even the Society for AOE Oncology, they're all kind of saying the same thing in different ways, but no one's really aggregating them into one sort of like a magic document, so to speak. Is there a need for that to happen? Is there like, do we need to revisit what the center of excellence actually means for young adults? This is Gwen. I, I think so. I think you know whether it falls under the umbrella of the center of excellence or becomes something else. I think there are some some standards, um, just like there are for survivorship programs or for young adult clinics about aspects uh, that need to be attended to, and I think it would be great, and it's, you know, maybe even in the future, that one's NCI designation is, you know, uh, that that's another standard that needs to be maintained to maintain that designation, although, um, you know, that may be more related to research than actual clinical service, but I also understand the, the difficulty on the part of the provider and the institution, because... Um, one thing that we recommend as a way for programs to get started if they don't have anything is to find out what resources are available in your area. Uh, you guys have a great list on the Stupid Cancer website of the national organizations, but you need to find out you know, who are the reproductive endocrinologists, the infertility specialists in the area who can provide you know, the banking services and the consultations and that type of thing. And for smaller cancer centers or places in remote areas that don't have access to those services, they know that finances are a huge issue. It's not uh, often a service that's covered, and often young adults, you know, have not started earning income yet, and they don't have the savings to uh, pay for something like this. And so they feel very challenged, you know, telling someone, well, your fertility is going to be threatened but I've got nothing to offer you. You know, the nearest reproductive endocrinologist is in the next state. Um, your insurance won't cover this, or you don't have insurance. And so it's not a reason not to tell someone. People should always have the information. But there are certain challenges on the part of the institution about, you know, telling someone about something but then not being able to per- to back it up with, with options. Right. I actually had one other question that's slightly swerving a little bit um, about gender differentiation. Um, is did, did your interviews talk about just male versus female fertility preservation? What is more common? What is more frequently discussed? What which patients are asking more about it? Have do you have any research on that? No, ab- absolutely. From what from what we were doing, one of the things that we asked them because we wanted to be a little more general is we asked them sort of who were the patients who were most likely and least likely to be told at your institution about fertility risks. And it varied a lot. So I can't say that, you know, men were more likely to be told and women weren't. But pretty much everybody recognized that within these large institutions that there was likely to be a group that might be missed. So Mm -hmm. in some places they would say, well, the the men aren't being told because people sort of assume that the men know about it because the technology is is pretty well known and and other people would say oh well you know we taught the men know but because for women the options are so much more expensive and labor intensive that the women are less likely to be told so there's no uh i so i think it came up a lot and people were aware of disparities within their own institutions but i can't say um from the from this study you know if it was more or less likely among certain groups. I know that Gwen has done some work that she can talk about having to do with which patients are more or less likely to be to be told about things. Well, this is Matt. Yeah, I was so di- our- Sorry, I just wanted to hop in there. I was diagnosed when I was 21, but I was treated in pediatrics. 
And I can say from personal experience that the first thing they discussed with me was my fertility because they're used to talking to 15-year-olds and 8-year-olds. I mean, 8 wouldn't be in the range, but they, they do see a lot of uh, teenagers. And I, I, did any of your research uh, speak to, you mentioned getting sort of tossed over to the pediatric cancer world, but did you talk to people whose clinics sort of tow both lines so we did talk to a few places. So this particular uh, paper that was published dealt with the adult clinics, but we also talked to people at pediatric clinics, uh, and some of those were the same people where they did straddle that, uh, especially with the recognition that in many cases young adults for certain cancers are better off being treated at pediatric centers. Um, and so it's it's interesting because I went into it thinking like what you said, that, that, the, that the pediatric centers would be so used to talking about that. And it seems that in many cases the pediatric centers are just as uncomfortable having those discussions uh, as they are with the adults. And maybe it's because the parents are there. Um, you know, there, there can be a whole range of reasons. But it's not, as, it's not as simple as being able to say, oh, the pediatric sites do a great job of this because they're more comfortable talking about this with, with adolescents. I think it depends, you know, pediatric hematologists aren't necessarily used to um, or didn't go into it thinking that they would need to be used to talking about that as opposed to maybe a pediatric endocrinologist who would be used to talking about things like puberty. Right. This is actually kind of a technical question, um, but to what extent is fertility preservation possible in pediatrics? Like, at what so age? Because clearly, like, a six-year-old, no. Yeah. Right. So there... Uh, there are some experimental options, and mm -hmm. so there's nothing that somebody could do really outside of um, a research setting. So there, I think, was it even in New York, Gwen, that there was a case of a two-year-old who um, yeah. who had some ovarian tissue frozen? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because girls, because girls are born with all the eggs that they're ever going to have. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not anything will be able to do be done with that tissue by the time that she's 20 or 25, you know, who, who knows? But so there are some experimental options for girls who are prepubescent, and there are similar experimental things being done um, for boys who are prepubescent or also for men in take, uh, if they cannot produce any viable sperm and taking some testicular tissue. Gotcha. All right, so I'm going to hop in here and ask you, uh, you, you What's the follow for this? Is there another, like, scathing report, like, hey, we spoke to advocates and they're just as pissed? You know, like, wh where can we uh, help you with these findings? Because clearly I would turn, I would create a stupid cancer center of excellence tomorrow if I could. We might be able to do that maybe by, like, Thursday, but not tomorrow. Or but maybe tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm on a plane tomorrow, so we'll have to wait till Thursday. But w what's the role of the patient advocates now? If we've raised enough awareness and we've moved the needle on certain things and built communities and there's narrative now and even a show like this with millions of listeners, you know, where do we take this information? How can we help you? Well, one thing I would suggest is that um, there are a variety of ways that healthcare providers can, can get more information. Um, we have a training program um, at uh, Moffitt Cancer Center for nurses, and you know, any nurse in the country can apply to be part of this training program. It's an eight-week training program to learn how to communicate about issues about reproductive health. And I, I want to add that while fertility is one issue, and it's a huge issue, there's other really important aspects of reproductive health, and that's contraception and protection against sexually transmitted disease. And sometimes we oversell the uh, to the young person this infertility that may happen, and then we have people who have become pregnant while they're on treatment. Um, so there's uh, a, a broader issue about reproductive health that needs to be addressed. It's very, you know, unique for this population and that you're not going to deal with so much in the pediatric population or in the over 40 population. So I would encourage as much uh, advertisement as can be done to have providers to get trained and for um, reproductive endocrinologists and cancer centers or practices to form these relationships because if there is somebody, as Marla said earlier, if there's somebody to, to give the handoff to, 
that makes the job in, from the oncology center um, a lot easier. Uh, and then just the constant, you know, awareness raising because, you know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you've got a lot to think about. And one patient once said to me, you know, you, you slapped me across the face and told me I had cancer, and then you kicked me in the stomach and told me I wasn't going to be fertile. And it's a lot to deal with, and advocates can play a great role in helping people kind of navigate the landscape of, you know, all right, today you have to worry about this, but let's think about other things, too, so we can plan for your survivorship at the same time we're planning for your treatment. I'm going to hop in with a... I think that... Sorry, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, to to add to that, that um, I had a patient say to me, you know, if my mother and my grandmother knew that my cancer treatment could make me infertile, why didn't my doctor say so? And so... I think that, that in terms of what can advocates do and people who are survivors do, I think that going back to their providers and the institutions where they were treated and say, you know, this is a, this is a real issue. Why should somebody have to find that out on their own? Why is it that, um, because it often is actually the, the moms or the aunts or the, or the female people in their lives, why do they, why is it something that is not being brought up if it is something that, you know, is also so much part of, general knowledge in some ways because, and I think Gwen said this before, you know, it's a catch-22. Doctors don't bring it up and then they think because if the patient really wanted to hear about it, the patient would bring it up, but patients don't know that they're supposed to and they sort of think, oh, well, if my doctor didn't bring it up, then it must not apply to me. So I think that people who have then those relationships with those healthcare providers can go to them and say, you know, what are you doing? Why, you know, why is it something that somebody would hear from their mother or their grandmother and not hear from their oncologist. Exactly. Well, that's a great point. And I also wanted to throw out more of an extrapolation question, which is do you feel like as the next generation of providers starts moving in, the ones exiting med school these days that are currently residents, interns, and fellows under 40, 45, are they more perhaps inherently aware of fertility rights when they diagnose people their own age respectively versus trying to train providers who are perhaps over the age of 50, 55, 60, even 70, where this wasn't an educational talking point when they were in school 40 years ago, but it's not something that they have a personal concern for. I think think that that there's hope that that could happen because... Um, yes, if it becomes part of standard medical school curriculum, it's more likely to, you know, infiltrate into the practices. And, you know, there's a new group of residents and fellows that come every July, and you know, the onus is on the institutions to make sure that the, those residents and fellows get exposed to that information, um, or certainly like within their oncology rotation. We did a study of um, barriers to the communicating about fertility among providers, and we suspected that the date of graduation from medical school would be an important variable and whether or not they discussed and referred, but it, it wasn't. Um, actually, the, the one provider characteristic that was that you were more likely to discuss and refer if you were a female oncologist than if you were a male. Marlon, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think that... Um you know, as Gwen was saying, that, that we would hope that, that things would change. I think to a certain extent that things will in part because survivorship issues themselves have become so much more prominent, right? People don't just accept that, um, that, they, that they don't need to provide any sort of psychosocial care, for example. You know, they will look for depression. They will look for uh, cognitive problems. They will look for all of these other quality of life issues even if they can't necessarily, you know, as an oncologist, fix them. So I think that there's much more of a recognition in the last 20 years that it's not just about surviving cancer, it's surviving as well as you can with cancer. It's about having a life that's as close to the life that you could possibly have. And so it, I think that in that sense, if people talk about it in that way, that, um, that there is more hope, and I think that some of those attitudes are changing because, you know, if you were to say to somebody, well, you know, when we when you talk about quality of life, oncologists understand that, right? They they understand it, for example, with not wanting people to be vomiting constantly with chemo, and they understand it with people wanting to be able to, 
you know, maintain the relationships that they have and all of those types of things. And so when you talk about it as a quality of life issue and you talk about it as being proactive on a survivorship issue, that's something that I think resonates a little bit more than it used to. All right, so I want to hop on. Um, actually, Maureen has another quick, quick question here. Yeah, Gwen, you mentioned that uh, data graduation from medical school wasn't relevant um, in finding out which doctors were talking about fertility preservation, but the gender was. Um, is Have you found any kind of justification or any reason, or do you have any theories behind why female providers are more likely to talk about it than men? We've, we've puzzled about that for a while, and I think it's a lot like what Marla said. I, I think, uh, you know, the mothers and the grandmothers, the female species is maybe more in tune with thinking about uh, children and, and the future. That's the only thing that I, I can guess. Um, mm-hmm. I, I also know, going back to a, a, a question that was raised earlier, that in this documentation study that we're doing, women are far less likely to have a documentation in their chart than uh, a male patient about having a discussion of fertility. And I think part of that reason may also be the complication of it, just like some physicians may skip over talking it to men, assuming that they know, some it's not brought up to women because it's more complicated and involved. And you can send a man to go sperm bank, you know, within 24 hours, but even just getting a consultation as a woman sometimes, you know, can take longer than that. And women really do need to have, it's, it's not so, as, and I'm not implying that it's, that it's simple, but it's not as done as easily to sperm bank as it is to think about these fertility preservation options, what you want, and the long-term ramifications of this. What if you store eggs? What if you store embryos? What if you don't use them? What will you do with them? There's a lot of in the future thinking that needs to happen, so it can't just be a quick, well, I'm just going to go do this. Right. All right. I wanted to uh, touch on, you know, the what I would find the curiosity, the initial uh, conversation with these centers, with whomever actually wrote back to you and responded. I'm actually kind of ashamed that there are, I think you said eight centers that just paid you no attention whatsoever and just despite hounding them. That's a, we should go public with that. I would be happy to go and shame them on, on, on Facebook for being um, ignorant of this need. Uh, whether they are or not, we can get their attention. But that aside, because that's kind of what I do, that aside, were the people you spoke with like completely like taken aback by someone asking this question, how dare you come into my center and ask me about this? Was, was there a, any kind of pushback you got from certain clinics about this? No, I mean, I think other than the the couple that, um, you know, that I wouldn't say that, that anybody said sort of a how dare you. I think that, um, there, like I said, the couple that referred us to childhood cancer survivorship clinics really didn't even know where we were coming from. Well, the other ones, when we had people who responded, I think that they were very um, willing to talk about the fact that they, um, of what the, the challenges were. Uh, and what for some of them there, there were bigger challenges and some you know less big and some places had more mature programs and some didn't really have programs but I think that they you know everybody knows that that there's no aspect of clinical care that they that everybody does perfectly and so being able to say well here are the things that we've been able to do and here are the things we haven't been able to do um, was not something that people felt like they they needed to necessarily be uh, Embarrassed is the wrong word, but that they needed to. It's not that they. It's not that they said, "Oh, well, it's just fine," but they didn't feel uh, upset that somebody was asking about it because it gives them also an opportunity to, to, um, to talk about maybe why things aren't the way that they think they should be. Some of the some of the people are very frustrated at the institutions that they work in, and some have made great progress while they've been there. And so, you know, there's a. It really. It does really span the whole range of, of experiences. You know, we've been doing the show for seven. Think our awesome Marla. Sorry, go ahead. I keep doing that. I'll let you both oh, respond. Yes. Some places, you know, would be if if, if such a um, service existed, if there were, you know, consultants or people who could come in and help them organize and strategize and do a needs assessment about what's there and what might work. Um, 
this isn't necessarily that type of service, you know, available, but I, I felt like people would be open to it. Absolutely. I felt like a lot of people were, were very open to it, in, in part also because, uh, and this is one of the things, is there had been a couple of places like Memorial Sloan Clettering and Moffat that had published what they had done and how to try to build your own fertility preservation program. But this gave, um, but what this research really did was sort of provide more of an overview. And so there's not really a lot of opportunity for people when they're building a program to try to be able to say, oh, you know, if you talk about an inst one individual place, you could say to yourself or to your, or the higher-ups could say to you, oh, but we're not like Moffitt because X, Y, and Z. But when you look at it as a whole, to be able to say, oh, not everybody who is trying to attack this problem is trying to attack it in exactly the same way, but there are still some lessons that could be learned. That's a different model of looking at things. All right, so I have one more question, and then I want to try to end on a high note. So what ha we, we've been doing the show for seven years, and every 290, tonight's our 294th show. Every single show has a young adult survivor, perhaps except for tonight because Julie couldn't make it, but every show has a young adult survivor telling their story at the top of the show, and we always ask them, were you given your fertility rights? What was the situation for you? And I'm finding more and more people are, are answering positively, and I don't know what the correlation is about that, whether they're, there are just more proactive patients asking, and if the hospital doesn't know, they'll find out on their own, or... Uh, if uh, there are actually centers that are doing this that we don't know about, then maybe are not NCI comprehensive cancer centers, and it, it, there really is bigger change out there happening that we're not aware of. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's excellent to hear. I mean, I certainly hope that this momentum just grows and grows and that, you know, the next big issue that we tackle is the funding side of it. Um, but I'm sure that there are places out there that don't have NCI uh, designation, but maybe because they're smaller, they're able to provide those services. And, and I think another really important part about this is having people come on your show, having people come out and talk about it, even people who might make alternative choices. You know, sometimes we have to talk to survivors who didn't get any fertility information before cancer, and now they're faced with infertility, but what can they still do to be a parent? And some of the technologies and things that are available seem very strange and, you know, outer space-like. But the more people talk and tell their story, the more it normalizes it. And I think that helps other people in the decision-making process and, you know, it, it, it makes them feel like they're not alone. All right. So let's end, let's end with some really positive takeaways. Clearly this article raised a lot of eyebrows that earned the right kind of ire with communities that had hoped we've been uh, seeing more progress. And maybe it's unfair that we're not exploring the 5,000-some other cancer centers that are not NCI-designated, but I think if you are NCI-designated, de that seems to come with a certain degree of, 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 uh, of, of gravitas that one might expect them to have this. But from a, again, we're just kind of having the conversation. What would you like to leave our audience with, our listeners with, uh, as a positive takeaway? I think as a positive takeaway, it's, um, it's not just about the fertility issues. It's, it's about, uh, about family building. And so for some people, there are always going to be some people where even if they get the information, there's not going to be time or there's not going to be money or they're not going to be able to do something for whatever reason, that that doesn't necessarily mean the end of being able to be a parent, that there are lots of ways to do that. And so I think that we need to change the conversation a little bit, just like I was talking about changing it to being more about survivorship. We need to talk about a lot of those the really positive um, other parts of survivorship that is not um, – that's not focused solely on fertility and fertility loss, but is focused on how can we help you get the best life you can possibly have. That's the best way to end the show. I, we, we were, we've been talking for 50 minutes. You guys got the whole bulk of the show worked out. We could clearly talk about this for the next day and a half without interruption as well. Uh, very important topic for our, our listeners, our movement, our brand, and, and I can't thank you guys enough for pursuing this and hopefully continuing to pursue it because I think you just 
just opened up the door. You cracked the door open to something much bigger. So congratulations on your success, and we're here to help. Um, we have been uh, speaking tonight with Drs. Gwen Quinn and Marla Clayman. Gwen Quinn is the uh, senior scientist at the Moffitt Cancer Center and professor at USF College of Medicine. Marla Clayman is an assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern University and a member of the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, uh, and their research focuses on patient participation, decision-making, and uh, patient-provider communication. Their article in U.S. News and World Report and other outlets is called Leading Cancer Centers Neglect Patients' Fertility. Just Google that and have your mind blown. Thank you so much for joining us on tonight's show. I hope to see you guys soon. Thank you for having us. Okay. Thank you for having us. It was great. All right. Good night. Good night. It really bugged me when I read that article. Yeah, me too. Especially, you know, we bring people onto the show and we talk in the Survivor Spotlight on a regular basis about fertility. And from our perspective, you know, just talking one-off, it felt, I think, to us like things were getting better. Right. That, you know, you 18 years ago heard nothing about it, but you were under the assumption that today that was not the case. Right. Um, and to read this and learn that we might have been wrong is is difficult. Well, it, it, we we work with the information we have and we assume, and then this mm-hmm. comes out, and it you know it, it's a. But again, we also only talk to patients. We don't necessarily talk to the providers, the academic centers, and we don't specifically deal with NCI designated only hospitals. So we don't yeah. really know. Uh, but yeah, this is like very enlightening. There are hundreds of hospitals across the country. Right. Maybe they're doing better. Maybe they're doing worse. Right. And, but this is this is very important research, and to know that some of our best ones aren't doing it is is really. Right. Disturbing. Right. So I think we should invent the uh, stupid cancer center of excellence for 2015. All get, right. Get on that. Okay. Great. <laughs> we'll do I'll do tomorrow. that in my 50th hour of exactly. work. Exactly. Fantastic. Sure. All right. Well, thanks so much for a great show. Thanks for listening, folks. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, part of season 14 here on the Stupid Cancer Show. It's our 294th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. All right, we'd like to thank our guests, Doctors Marla Clayman and Gwen Quinn. A fabulous discussion about the state of affairs in fertility preservation and fertility rights. Next week's show, Dr. Robert Zembrowski, join us for an exclusive 30-minute interview with Dr. Robert Zembrowski, who rebuilt his body after harrowing cancer treatment and is leading his patients and the public to the benefits of a therapeutic lifestyle integrating nutrition, exercise, and stress management. Really amazing guy. Going to be a very inspiring show. Survivor Spotlight on author, blogger, Annie Katz. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week live at 8 o'clock. Good night, folks. Have a great night.